Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is Listener. And that's what you do. You listen. I've been thinking about something. I've been thinking about heroes. I've been thinking about legends, icons, the idolatry of people whom we feel were... Um, who we feel were perfect, that they were impenetrable, they could do no wrong, the ones who who had such an effect on culture and artistry that they will be remembered forever and the only disappointment is that they didn't live longer to enjoy their gift. Who are these people? Um... You know, we can speak of the 27 Club, right? Uh, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Basquiat, uh, Jim Morrison, Amy Winehouse. These people who all died at 27. Eerie, weird, I know. Who left this indelible mark on the world. Who basically set into motion what would inevitably be decades of, of cultural significance. Right. And I mean, who knows how long it'll last. These people only died over the last 40 years. Like maybe our kids and their kids will be listening to these people with with posters on their walls, wishing only that they had, you know, been able to experience this when those people were still alive. And yet. I'm finding at the tender age of 32 being a witness to the people that I looked up to and entertainment and whatnot who are all maturing. I mean, the, the realities are, right, is that father time is going to get us all, or mother time. I'm not assigning a gender. But it's the one great equalizer, right? I don't care how dope you are, how much money you have, what great shape you're in, and how much fucking Peloton biking you're doing. Inevitably, fucking around 80, shit's going to get shaky. And if you're around around 90, I don't care how cool you are, it's less fun than when you were in your 30s. And you're probably rather soon going to meet your demise. But these people that we, we, we so look up to, they will always inevitably let us down. They will always be subject to living too long. That's why Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin are so fucking cool because they left their mark and they left. They literally mic dropped and then left the earth. They did all their best work, which most people do in their 20s. It seems to be this perfect sort of apex of like the carefree sort of fearless nature of a young person met with immense talent, which they undoubtedly had. And it's it's just this like, you know, uh, bazooka of of talent and significance and and artistry. And they did this, and then they died. And we're all here left to miss them and wonder what great contributions they would have given us had they been able to stay on this earth. And I think without question they would have continued to bless us with some incredibly dope shit and I think without question there's a chance that one of those people that I mentioned in the 27 club 
had they lived into their 40s, 50s, 60s, might have been on Dancing with the Stars. Right? I mean, fuck. Live long enough and you'll disappoint some people. I mean, who has been without disappointing people? Paul McCartney, I guess? He hasn't had too many missteps. He's not a host of The Voice yet. Uh, you know, Stephen Hawking, he seems to pretty much have had, he just had one long, illustrious career and then basically exited on a, you know, just on a high note. But for better or for worse, like, our heroes disappoint us. I mean, they either become like hosts of game shows or singing competitions or they say some wild shit on Twitter because. I don't know. I don't know if Twitter's made for anyone, but it's especially, you know, not made for people who uh, have have unfed egos that constantly need the reassurance of the public that they're relevant. So I'm sure that without a doubt, you know, these people that we look up to give them long enough and they'll disappoint you. I mean, fuck Rudy Giuliani. I grew up in New York City. Rudy Giuliani was looked at as like the great, you know, superhero mayor of the greatest city in the world. I mean, basically, and some might say he kind of took away the, the pizzazz and the the nitty gritty, wonderful artistry of New York City that is kind of what made it great. But he cleaned it up. He made Times Square not a scary place to walk through. You know, you weren't afraid of getting mugged in the subway anymore once he came into town. And then he capped it off with 9-11, the greatest tragedy in our history as Americans, and he was America's mayor. He handled fucking biz. And now the man is a fucking... He's a scary-ass vampire who perpetuates... The ridiculousness of the people that he aligns himself with, and I don't mean to be overtly political because whatever it is, your leanings, and maybe you're like, oh man, I didn't think Rudy Giuliani could get any better, and then he started lying for Donald Trump, and that just seems like, like the dopest shit. I mean, look, granted, I'm just saying, right? Let's take the politics out of it because I, I. I Actually, the pod today, my guest, Martin Starr, who I, I really enjoyed interviewing, we kind of get into the whole Trump of it all. And, and I apologize because inevitably I think we're all very clear about my leanings and yet I I, I don't want to ever ostracize my audience or alienate them because I got a lot of friends and people whom I love where we don't necessarily see um, along the same line politically, but we find a, a common ground. And we find a way to like each other despite our political beliefs. So just stay with me here, would you? But Rudy Giuliani had an opportunity to exit as like this beautifully unblemished record. You know what I'm saying? And then he chose to like get back into the game in something that was inherently polarizing that he knew he would turn off perhaps half of the world and maybe more. And for what? I don't know. I fail to believe that he feels as though like he's compelled to do this, that it's this massively virtuous uh, sort of mission. I don't I'm not uh, I'm not completely convinced of this. I think it was born out of a need for relevancy. And I'm sure that there are plenty of opportunities that are born out of him being in the news cycle every day for him to make a little extra scratch. 
and people in their 50s and 60s like to solidify and reinforce their nest egg to make sure that they're taken care of and maybe their kids are too. And so I think that's like this really interesting thing that there's a good chance Jim Morrison would have been the host of The Voice. (laughs) Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine him on American Idol as one of the judges? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Is that show still on? Sitting next to Simon Cowell being like, (laughs) from the uh, indelible rock group The Doors, the writer of such songs is... (laughs) As, come on, baby, light my fire. It's Jim Morrison, right? I mean, I'm sorry. There's a lot of cars coming by me. I picked a really awful spot to record this podcast. But you know what? Listen, I'm, I'm a person. I'm, I'm, I'm imperfect. So yeah, I've been thinking about that. And then there was this other guy, who auditioned for SNL. His name is Shane. And he got SNL. I heard he had a kick-ass audition. I, I don't know too much of his work. I, I suppose he's he's really talented, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. And I probably shouldn't even be talking about it on my podcast, but here we are. Anyway, this guy Shane, he was in the news because they made him a cast member of Saturday Night Live and then some past sort of podcasts, some things, some bad jokes that he had made that were pretty much just racist, uh, came out and, uh, and SNL fired him because they were like, no, 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 not here. No, with this uproar, no thanks. And he kind of did a bit of a mea culpa and apologized, but not really talked about like the need for comedians to push boundaries, which of course is true. And fuck, man, I apologize, Shane, because if I was in your position, the last thing I would want to do is, like, have some jerk-off on his podcast talking about me, who doesn't really know all the details, so I, I won't, you know, I, I, I won't presume to know exactly the, the nuances of this situation, and, and I hope for him that he only has, you know, success after this, because we're all fallible, we're all capable of making a mistake, and if we had all been judged... By the worst thing we had ever done, if if the worst thing we had ever done was pulled out of the st- our stories and brought up to the the grand, I don't know what you believe in, but let's just imagine God. If God had to judge us all on the worst thing we ever did, many of us would be going to the fiery fucking pits. Okay, you virtue signaling fucking hypocrites. Let's be real here, guys. You know, I recently wrote on Twitter after I deleted it from my phone because I really had enough of the whole social media game. I'm, I'm too sensitive and I'm too self-absorbed. I can't help myself from looking at this shit. And I think that, like, Jamie in Tulsa, who talks some shit to me, represents the whole world. I'm like, fuck, Jamie doesn't like me. I must be the worst. And that's how poorly I'm built. And I know I'm not alone here because, you know, plenty of people lash out at the at the mean people on the Internet with, from their mansions and from their $300,000 cars. They clap back because someone who has no experience and really has no right to criticize them does. I'm just saying. But uh, we're all fallible. 
and the horde mentality and sort of the 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 social media cancel culture of it all basically decides that if you have a single transgression that they find unacceptable you're finished and you're cast off to an island um to never appear again or at least you must take like a year off at least and so i don't agree i think that's really shitty and i think people should uh feel free to make certain mistakes granted we're not talking about weinstein cosby level here that's some shit that cancels you forever and for for fucking good Because, let's be honest here, those guys are monsters. But I'm talking about being human, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And I think there's got to be a road to recovery. Like, we have to all agree as a culture, like, okay, if you say something mildly racist in an effort to be funny, can you um, do X amount of hours of service work, (laughs) community service, um, get fired from no more than two jobs and stay away from social media for six months. And then, only then, are you allowed back into entertainment with your slate cleared and you are allowed now to, you know, make a living again and hopefully find your way back to some sort of, uh, to some sort of success. I don't know. I don't know what the case is. I haven't been canceled yet, but it it could it could literally happen tomorrow. Why? Because I'm an imperfect person and I don't know if there's shit that I've said in the past that I've completely forgot about that was like reasonably innocuous or I thought in the moment I was being funny and for that time it was like slightly acceptable, but now if we were to look back at it, you know, with like through the prism of the last 10 years, we'd be like, "Wow, that was slightly fucked up. Maybe he should be punished for this." I could be, we could all be next. Um, so I'm a little, uh, I'm a little careful and I'm cautious. I really don't want to be canceled because fuck, I mean, you know, you got to support a kid and a wife and a life. I have my mom, I have a Barbara that I take care of and it's my pleasure. But anyway... I'm interested to see what happens with this dude and see if he can come back. Now, here's what I'll say. Now that I've quasi-defended at least the ability in which for artists to have some room, I I wouldn't even say artists. I would say human beings. If a guy at the fucking Nabisco factory wrote something stupid once in his life, he should be able to keep making cookies. Should he be ostracized? Should he be banished from the Nabisco factory and have to go work at, I don't know, fucking Kroger supermarket and and lose his pension and his life and his benefits? I'm sure it's a union gig. I would imagine Nabisco takes good care of their people. Should people be banished? I think it depends on the transgression, right? Abuse, um, sexual harassment... Uh, malignant racism. Yes, there's no room for these things. It's unacceptable. But, you know, there's nuance here. There's degrees of shit. Why? Because as you'll learn, as you get a little bit older, and this is only something that's new to me, is that, like, life is so rarely black and white. There's nuance in all these things and gray areas and whatnot. 
and trust me, I'm not defending the, the transgressions and the unacceptable acts of so many people out there that made the workplace and other places uncomfortable for people who didn't have a voice. And so I think this time is almost completely good that the scales have shifted so much to the other side that we are seeing a deluge of the bullshit. Absolutely. So what I'll say after saying all that is, I think what he said was fucked up. <laughs> I do. I just feel like his his greatest sort of... Uh, um what he's guilty of was being not funny. It wasn't even remotely funny. It was, it was just, it was just very not funny. And I think as a comedian or a funny person, if you're going to be willing to walk that line and say, I'm going to get really close to the edge, you better be funny as fuck. And I can understand a comedian clapping back at me in this moment and being like, yeah, so how do you think we figure out what's funny as fuck? It's by falling on our face 20 times at a comedy club until we figure out the bit that eventually you see in the Netflix special that works. Fair. I hear you. Take it easy. But what I would say is, listen, if you want to, there's a, a grand scope of funny shit, right? And yes, you can push the limits with gender and race and politics and sexual orientation and all these things, all these things that are triggering subjects for a lot of people, especially today. But if you want to dabble in the dark arts, if you want to fuck with this shit that actually, you know, you know, there's a good chance people are going to get good and upset over, you better be funny as fuck. Because I think everything is forgiven when it's funny. It's hard to be offended when you're truly laughing. Um, and if you're not confident that you're not, if you're not confident that you're that funny, talk about Tinder. <laughs> talk about some hacky shit like fucking airplanes and TSA and I don't know, uh, the people at work who eat your snacks in the fridge. I don't know. But there's room. There's other shit to talk about. You know what I mean? Like Seinfeld, Sebastian Maniscalco, they're so talented and they're, you know, they kind of, the subject matter in which they pull from is is pretty observational, pretty somewhat safe. And to their testament, they elevate it to such a level that I feel like you give them even more points because they've made you really laugh about something that seems so utterly simple. Um, and I just, I just really like those guys. But Wow. What a what a diatribe. What a what a tirade for me to go off on. I you know, y'all fucked up when you told me to start doing these rants more and that you like them cuz listen, my spirit was broken. I wasn't going to do this anymore. I was just going to fucking hang it up, do the interview, quick intro, quick outro. Bye. But now you got me fucking JPEG unplugged and this is what it is. It's it's not pretty and it's probably going to get me into some trouble. So wouldn't it be amazing if this is the, the thing that gets me canceled? Me worrying about getting canceled is the thing that gets me canceled. Great. Uh, listen, I could do a nine to five. Okay. No problem. I could sit for a, for a long stretch. I like doing time. All right. That's not true. Oh God. I don't want anything bad to happen to me. I really need this. I really need everything to work out.
I got a lot of balls in the air. I got a lot of potential jobs, things in the works. And it just, if, if this gets bad press, I mean, it's all going to fall away. I'm not feeling good about this at all. And you know what the worst part is? Here I am recording it. I could literally intercept this and fucking not post it and just do a nice little two-minute bit, re-record this and be like, hey, welcome to the Josh Peck podcast. Fucking curious. I'm the host. You're the listener. You listen, right? Our guest, Martin Starr, going to be good. Listen up. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put it out because I think this is like reasonably interesting and funny, kind of. And I'm going to roll the dice. <laughs> oh, I'm so scared. Oh, what else? What else? What else is? This has gone on too long. And on today's show, Martin Starr. Man, you know this guy from Freaks and Geeks, Silicon Valley, so many Judd Apatow movies. He's so talented, so funny. Um, definitely uh, just someone that I, I felt really lucky to be able to interview and that I it took a little heavy lifting at first because he wanted me at the top of my game. And the reality is he didn't understand that that was me at the top of my game and that it doesn't get any better. But then he came down to my level and we had a great podcast. Um, I hope you guys enjoy this. Here's Martin. going down you know just banging out a couple podcasts and having a podcast day are you i did one this morning stop it which one i'm jealous uh i just i try to clump them together <laughs> get her done you're on a you're on a podcast tour which one do you do you seem like you're not you're trying to hold it back i just don't really yeah this isn't where i put my energy <laughs> uh, i get i listen to a lot of them i just i'd rather be acting always so i'd <laughs> End up trying to put energy somewhere else, I think. Martin, you, you still haven't told me which one you did this morning. Uh, oh, uh, do you know Clint Culp? No, but he sounds great. He's an actor. It was more of a, it's a thing he puts on YouTube. I think he also might put it out as a podcast, but it was a similar just interview situation. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So is that true? Would you really only want to be acting all the time if, you, if given the choice? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. How many one, hours? One thousand percent. 24 hours a day. Really? Well, no, but I still have to eat, like, eat and do other things. But No hobbies? Yeah, I like doing other things. Like? Uh, painting, mm. rapping. Um, really? I've been taking jujitsu, which is real fun. Are, are you an MMA fan? or? A... Uh, no, that, isn't, that wasn't my <laughs> uh, inspiration. Uh, a buddy of mine has been taking jujitsu for a while. No so, way. Yeah. Where are you rolling? Uh, okay. Yeah. Show off. Don't um, worry about it. I, um, is this being recorded now? Yeah. Yeah, you're <laughs> being sneaky. Um, <laughs> uh, I've been going, I've been, uh, teaching, uh, teaching. I've been learning from, um, uh, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, master by the name of, uh, Cobrinha. He's, yeah, he's a dude. He's yeah. the dude. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's he's one of the one of the one of the best. It's like a Gracie. Um, yeah, he's uh, and I'd say more than anything because I'm not super familiar with this world. So for me, it's just um, interesting getting into it, and I'm I don't have like um, um, uh, the, it's not. Um, 
I, I'm not, it's not, for me, this isn't like going to church, so to speak. Like, I'm, I'm not a big MMA guy. I'm not, mm. like, I, I wasn't like, oh, man, Cobrinha. Yeah, cloud. And, but, but, but meeting him before really knowing who he was, only understanding a few sentences from my friend talking about his accolades, all I knew was that he was a champion um, and that uh, and that he was obviously very good at Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But upon meeting him, I f- I, more than anything, what stands out is that he's an incredibly humble, um, kind, generous, compassionate human being and a very good teacher. So it's been incredible to sit and spend time with him. And, and, and I think that energy spreads throughout his entire class. So everyone has that mentality going in. You know, you meet a lot of those guys with cauliflower ear that are, you know, MMA guys that take this very serious. And that could be intimidating and daunting, but they all have the same, um, that, you know, everyone kind of bows down to Cobrinha's talent and skill in mm. the, you know, at the sport. Um, and so because his energy rules everything under that roof, um, then his compassion spreads through every single one of those guys who could otherwise have an ego or, um, you know, there could be a negative energy that permeates, but it doesn't because of him. It's interesting that you say that because I find for guys of our, I find it's slightly specific, mostly men of our age and a little older, like 30s, 40s, like everything you've just said, this beautiful thing about where you train and and, and your master is never said about CrossFit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, but a lot of guys do CrossFit. Right. Uh, and but, it, and it's, it's a similar thing. Like uh, one of the most valuable things that I get out of it is that I walk away sweating my ass off. But it seems like a higher, like a level up that, there's a spiritual level or like there's there's a intellectual level in addition to the physical it's a chess match yeah. there's a big difference between crossfit and something like jujitsu in that the there while keeping my body in shape and and having that spiritual connection with my own physical form um it also is enhancing mentally and stimulating mentally throughout the course of the training, and I'm consistently learning how to win at a at a very intricate chess match, mm. which could take place in my life at any time. Should some crazy weirdo want to get into a physical altercation with me, or push me or someone around me to a point at which I have to protect myself or someone else? Are you hoping for that though a little bit? No. An opportunity to use your skills? No. The, Come the, on. I, I, the, that, that's also one of the – I mean, I took Taekwondo growing up. Did you take any – I did. Martial arts? Yeah, well. I took uh, – in New York, we took like karate, like pretty yeah. big Sado karate. And then when I moved out to L.A., I took uh, Taekwondo with Master Ken Nagiyama of Burbank. Nice. No big deal. Burbank Of, of Burbank. Yeah. Uh, Burbank I, fame. I remember I once just called him Ken because I was 14. I'm like, oh, maybe Ken can show me. And they were like, uh-uh. No, bitch. That's Master Ken. Yeah. Master y- Namiyaga. That's funny. Yeah, man. Um, I didn't know Cabrini's real name until recently when I started looking up videos and things. Phil? Is it Phil? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> Arthur. Uh, <laughs> no, um, no, he has a very normal name and then... But people all call him Cabrini. But he's so humble. Like I, I couldn't see a world where... He doesn't 
in, enjoy any aspect of life. There's nothing that I, I couldn't see his buttons being pushed, so mm. to speak, you know. The master Ken of it all. And by the way, I said master because he's a master of this sport, but I at no point have called him master. I've seen people call him things like that. I guess I just don't think about it in that kind of terminology in my brain. Mm. Um, I, I, I suppose there's value in the respect aspect of it, but that also puts people at different levels. And he innately, the way that he teaches – Everyone is kind of equal. Every, like whenever we, whenever I've sat with him and talked with him, he consistently talks about how much he's learning from teaching. So even at my level, which is very low um, in the grand scheme of, of learning this martial art, um, he's learning from me in that my, mistake, my mistakes or my questions probably help him answer those questions in ways that he hadn't analyzed before. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So me wondering why you would do something like this is me rationally using a brain that's very different than his, asking a question that perhaps he wouldn't have thought of and helps him understand better why he does something that he does or a, an even better way to do it. So he's constantly evolving and learning, um, which is probably the most valuable characteristic in a human being. Do you think you're drawn to at, at a certain age? Because, like, again, like I don't see a lot of – guys who are approaching middle age who are attracted to a traditional belt system of like a taekwondo. Yeah, that's the weird part is like walking in and being a white belt. Uh, It it is is funny. Is there an ego smashing part of it too? Like I remember... Not for me, but I I see, I feel it in that room. Yeah, for sure. Like I remember Bourdain when he was alive had, you know, he had just started training Brazilian jiu-jitsu pretty... uh, pretty religiously and and he did an episode where he went to his his gym and and he talked about he's like I'll never be great at this and I'm okay with that like this will like it's 20 years to get a black belt anyway so I'm probably not going to be in my 70s getting a black belt but just the mere act of doing it like I don't know it seems for me maybe I'm projecting like the ego shattering portion of it being a beginner again is very attractive to me at this time in my life yeah yeah it's great to learn. Yeah. It's great to sit down and be humbled by the experience for sure. So have you rolled with anyone recent? Like my fear yeah, go is ahead. that I'd roll with someone who has something to prove. Yeah. And I would hurt uh, – they'd hurt yeah. my body. Yeah. I, I think um, I, I think naturally I would avoid that. Mm. Like I think that's – and I think you have every right to worry about something like that. It, it definitely is an aspect of – the game of the sport that is uh, that we're all susceptible to is ego or machismo or this thing that someone and especially as an actor, um, as someone who might be recognizable to some of the people in that room, then it's like, oh, okay, this guy thinks he can come in and learn my shit. This is my jam. Yeah, I'm going to win an MMA title or I'm going to be the best at this. And this motherfucker thinks he can just come in here, strut his shit, be friends with Cabrinha because he has a friend who's friends with Cabrinha who's right. also an actor. And like, and and I think all of those things come into play. And granted, Cabrinha doesn't carry that with him. He's very humble and he's accomplished quite a bit. Um, so it trickles down to a certain degree, but obviously everyone is individual. There, there are a lot of a kind of incredible – there are a lot of – not kind of, actually incredible people who come there just to learn from him. And I'd say more than anything, they're learning how to be better men and human beings, mm. which is 
really cool to like just just to to immediately have recognized that's what's kept me in it honestly is that Cobrinha is like just a great human being it's probably too to that my biggest fear in in getting older is that idea which I, I I see a lot of people fall victim to is just like the I'm all good done enough growing you know I'm here I've had some children I've made hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year for many years now and I'm fine and I, I don't know that that terrifies me yeah yeah we all do like we all do that we we um you just kind of sit back and get lazy but if ever you notice it then you jump back into action and start figuring it out again which I feel like was part of what drew me to this it's interesting. I'm, I'm interviewing this guy, David Epstein, later today, who wrote this book called Range. And it's it basically the... the it's, a, it's a shooting. It's a gun book. It's a gun book. It's about going to the range. Out at the range. Brokeback Mountain style. Dude, I already know it. Gay you stuff. don't even have to tell me anymore. <laughs> um, so he wrote a book called Range. He wrote a book called Range, and, and it's, he said it's why generalists triumph in a super specialized world. And he basically sort of mirrors Tiger Woods against Roger Federer and says Tiger Woods, who had sort of that storied two years old, he was at the driving range, that's all he did. And then Roger Federer, who like played a bunch of sports and didn't really focus in on tennis till like his late teens Mm -hmm. only. And basically he did all this research to find that actually there are very few things that benefit from super specialization that in fact, most great athletes were great at many sports and it was not overly focusing on it right away that help them to grow. Yeah. And so I wonder like with jujitsu or any of these things, like, and this is such a corny actory question, does it help you as an actor? Like having this deep sort of interest and passion in something that isn't isn't acting? I don't think so. <laughs> Great. I mean I I mean I don't think any more than anything else in my life. Would. Yeah. It helps me understand my body better. It helps me control my body better. So all of those things are valuable. It, help, mm. it helps me um, stay in shape so that I can use my body however I want to when I'm working. But but I feel like that could be anything. I could be playing tennis. I could be running track. I, I could be doing CrossFit. You know, like that's the spiritual side is probably more valuable just to be in touch with it mm. as an actor. <clears throat> I thought you were going to talk about how great I am at all the other athletic things that I do. What else? I mean, Taekwondo. Were you a black belt in Taekwondo? Uh, no, I did not. I hated Taekwondo. The sparring, which I haven't rolled with anyone yet. I haven't been doing it even long enough to do that. It's all been training exercises. So we learn a new move in a training exercise, and then we pair up, and we go through that exercise multiple, multiple times, and then he'll fine-tune it if he notices that a lot of people are doing something wrong. So he'll then he'll, he'll uh, give another um, example of, of what to do, and then, um, and then you go back and do it again for a while. But I haven't gotten to the point where you just kind of free roll, where you're, where you're just, I don't know enough about protecting myself and controlling my own body so that I don't hurt someone else. Mm to be ready for that I don't think yet, which is why I think you have to take, um, I don't know, 20 or 30 or 40 classes or something first. And then then you kind of get the feel for control and how to kind of slowly maneuver into it. But even then, whether you're ready or not is, you know, um, different for each individual. 
You talk about like how it helps you to stay in shape, um, to use your body better when it comes to acting and whatnot. Do you have any vanity as an actor? Like, do you not want to see yourself with like a little bit of a pot belly on screen? Uh, yeah, for I mean, everyone. Yeah, right. But most of it is probably related to being 13 years old and being incredibly insecure going through puberty, and seeing yourself on on in pictures or hearing your own voice for the first time in sixth grade when you're graduating or. Um, you know, these are just my personal moments, but those it's probably all related to that. Still trying to overcome those insecurities, but none of it matters. Like, I know that that's all superficial. Yeah. And unimportant. Does it amaze you when, like, for me, when I watch certain people have such freedom in their bodies, especially on screen, when, because obviously, like, I was 300 pounds. So when I was a kid and my career is sort of began being that size. So I did everything I could to sort of transform my look to what I thought was like the leading man type thing. And and even to have fallen short at this time in my life, I'm still like, well, you know, it was worth the work. But like when I see a guy who can be so like Chris Farley-esque and free in their body mm-hmm. and not have the typical body type, I'm in awe. I can't believe it. Yeah. I mean, that's some real shit. Yeah. I mean, we should all be that free. How do we get that? It's a lot of work inside. And jujitsu. And uh, jujitsu. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to, sorry, you didn't let me finish. Jujitsu is obviously the key to unlocking that door in everyone's life. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, just do Uh, jujitsu. What are you doing with yourselves? Yeah. Um, You grew up in Santa Monica? I was born in Santa Monica. I lived all over LA. You were born in Brooklyn? I was in New York, in the city. Okay. Oh, in the middle, in Manhattan. In, yes. Congratulations. There's got to be like room for one hospital in Manhattan. No, there's so many. Well, there's a lot of Jews. Okay, yeah. they need their own special hospital. Well, we like multiple to, to cut for the brisses. Well, the brisses are usually a home event. Got it. No hospitals involved. The rabbis make house calls. That's good. Listen, there's a lot of controversy over uh, circumcision nowadays. Oh, no, stop. But what I'll say is, <clears throat> it's a very nice party. A bris. You been? Is it? No. I, I've, <laughs> but there's only some, some weirdness I've heard about <laughs> the way it all kind of culminates in the end. After the, the way that the blood is removed off the boys. That's not true. I don't know, dude. <laughs> there, there was a <laughs> news story. Of, what was it? Then uh, It was in the... Maybe it was the late 90s about a... Say it, Martin. A, uh, a, a <laughs> rabbi who had herpes. Giving the kids herpes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In you Brooklyn. Know, you know the story. The, it was a Hasidim. Yeah, it was yeah. a ultra-Orthodox. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. I do not want that to be my first blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have to say. <laughs> <clears throat> that's fair. I get that. Yeah, no offense, but that's as uncool as it gets. <laughs> no, that's shitty. Um, oh, and by the way, this that's the rabbi that uh, gave you your first blowjob. <laughs> Inappropriate. All right, that should be cut out. Um, I don't think so. I think we'll probably leave with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kevin, please make yeah, that yeah. the soundbite for this that, episode. That ought to be it. We'll <clears throat> be getting that to Daily Mail immediately. Um, yeah, man, a, a bris is a good time. It's not great for the kid, but do they yeah. remember? Did you bris your kids yeah well i just had uh my first kid a little boy and yeah he had a circumcision in the hospital which actually as the reality is you know i grew up a jew it's common and in the moment 
the morning after my son was born, he was born at eight o'clock at night. And I yeah. remember at 10 a.m. the next morning, the doctor came and said, all right, let's do it. And I remember in that moment as I'm walking my child to what I felt was the electric chair, I thought, this is fucking barbaric. <laughs> Why do we do this? Yeah. And then. Leave it on, dude. I know. Like, like let him. I, I was circumcised as an adult. No. Yeah. Why? Because uh, I, it was. So I forget the name of it exactly. But there's, um, there's something that happens. That has been linked to bubble baths, taking a lot of bubble baths. If you if you're uncircumcised, I'm not even kidding. And no. the skin is tightened around the 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 around the head of the penis. That's the most champagne problem I've ever heard. But it, too many bubble baths. Too many bubble baths. Anyway, I've had a lot of bubble baths. <laughs> uh, sorry, I should have led with that. Um, hi, my name is Martin, and I've had a lot of bubble baths. Yeah. Uh, was as a kid, that became an issue, but it didn't really become a problem until I started having sex and then the foreskin wouldn't pull back so it became very painful to have sex wow. because obviously there's friction involved and so that was a driving force in me getting circumcised in my mid-twenties. What was that like? Walk us through. No, you don't Please. want. Well, no one kissed my penis after <laughs> it was cut off uh, so it was very unlike a bris. Um, the uh, I, I just remember counting down from 20 and the doctor lifting up my dress, uh, you, know, the, the op, you know, the operation dress that you get into as a patient, and lifting that up as I got to like 17. I was like, oh, now him and a couple nurses are looking at my dick. And then I went unconscious. Okay, so you were um, out. Yeah, like pr pretty quickly. But they didn't wait. They were like, all right, count down from 20. And then at like 19, he was already lifting it up. And I was like, this is so okay. Good night. Wow. <clears throat> and then I woke up with uh, a very um, bruised wiener. Wiener. So you, I mean, you've, I, you've literally died and come back in the respect of you know both sides. Like, because mm. that's the debate, right? Feels better with, doesn't feel as Far good. Far more sensitive skin existed before. Really? A lot of the sensitive skin was taken away. But sex is still dope? Yeah, sex is, sex is mental, you know, 90% of it anyway. So as long as you're invested in it in that way, you're great. But there was a lot of – there was a lot more sensitivity that existed before for sure. Any that, benefits? That now you're regretting killing your son's sensitivity for. I don't feel bad at all. Wow. It's it, No remorse. All, that's eh, so ugly when you don't. Is that? Yeah, it is. I thought I, uh, my, my, my shit was just as handsome before. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe I'm lucky. I, I would imagine you of all people would be. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. It, it was my wife's Catholic. And so, like, if we were going to do the bris, then there was talks of baptisms. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just keep the rel religious ceremonies out of his early years. And so we didn't do a bris, but it was the one thing I was like, if we're going to do this barbaric thing that in theory might be completely not necessary, 
at least maybe we give like a little religious bent to it. So it's like, you know, like a man's first blood out. And like, I'm sure there's, there's ties to sort of like early days when they made more sense of why we do these sort of barbaric things. But so I did, I did regret it. Also, I mean, as I said, it's a great, I mean, I'm talking bagels and cream cheese, many cold oh, salads. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that happens. Yeah. Fuck it. Let's go to our breasts. Maybe we do it. We just don't cut the dick. We just have bagels. Yeah. And hang out. Let's just cut the bagels. <laughs> yeah. I'm in. By the way, and just as a side note. Yeah. I'm sure you can imagine. The, I'll try. The rabbis who specialize in this, yeah. moyles, uh-huh. and their names, not a lot. Not a lot of new moyles. No. Well, especially after that guy got fired in New York. Right. Sort of gave a bad, you know. It's a bad spin on things. Oh, yeah. So you meet a moyle nowadays, they're cleaning up. They're doing three or four a day. 800 bucks a pop. Yeah. We should start a moyle business. I'm not saying we definitely should, but it's worth talking about. Yeah. I'm just, I'm not going to do the uh, traditional ones, if you know what I'm saying. Right. I'll let you handle those, especially because you. you're actually Jewish. Sure. You grew up all over right. LA. Yeah. Way before your adult circumcision. Uh-huh. And well, I'm still growing up technically. Sure. In some ways. Sure. What was what was that like? Like where'd you go where'd you go to high school? All over LA. How why'd you move so much? Um, I don't know. There were a lot of reasons. I I well, I moved to Florida for a year. What I part? Was, uh oh have you been to Florida? I live there. You live there now. I used to. <laughs> Rough. Yeah. Um, where in Florida did you live? Beautiful West Palm Beach. Okay, that's pretty. That's right. nice. Yeah, but right. I mean, at least you're on the beach. You've There's something nice about it there. Yeah. Uh, I was near Tampa in a town called Newport Ritchie. Okay. And I, I did not um, – it was just – it was a culture shock going from L.A., from especially from just a big city to a small Florida town. Florida I found very difficult to cope with, so I moved back after a year. But I went to high school there for a year. Um, was that? I think that was my freshman year, maybe my sophomore year. Then I came back and I went to uh, the arts high school out here. Hamilton? No. Uh, I mean, there are a few, but it's the public arts high school out here, Los Angeles County High School for the Arts, LOXA. And um, and I went to school with Taryn Killam. Um, uh and a, and a bunch of other people, but uh, um, I think he's one of the few that I've really kept in touch with now. Um, and I've followed his success on SNL and now um, Single Parents, I think. Um, and he's he's a sweet guy. But that was a great experience. And that that was actually cut short because of Freaks and Geeks because I started working as an actor. And that, uh, and that was very unfortunate. Taryn and I were on our first TV show, TV shows together. Okay. On the Amanda show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. And I remember, like, he was that guy who you'd sit in Video Village and everyone would be like, whoa. Like, he's, like, we're making kids TV here, but he's doing some shit. Yeah. Like, he was always great. Yeah. He's always inspired. He's he's such a sweet, he's, such, he's so talented, obviously, very funny, and uh, and now as an adult, he's a... Um, a great father and just a good a good guy. Yeah, it's really it's really nice to be able to maintain those kind of friendships and and see eye to eye. It's it's funny. I, I didn't have brothers and sisters growing up, but I have a uh, 
my cousin Taylor I bonded with as as an adult and he feels like a brother to me and they're like I've I've just kind of found my way into a lot of brother brother relationships that that have been so fruitful and so valuable for me to to grow and learn from you when you say like you almost say it as though you're surprised that Taryn is so great. Like, have you been disappointed with with a lot of people that you've met in the biz? I mean, I guess you met him before that. But. Yeah, yeah. We we definitely knew each other well before we, anything was happening here for us and in in, um, uh, in our careers. But yeah, I don't know if surprised is the right word. But it, I'm I'm all I, maybe pleasantly surprised. It, mm. It's um I'm it's less about the disappointment of other experiences and more just um. Happy that my growth and development has is paralleled in my relationships, and obviously that would be the case. But to like to, it's just nice to like find people who are like minded because it, especially now, it feels it just feels like everything is so polarizing. Everything is pushing people away from each other. So to be like minded and to be open minded, um, to be open minded, I think is the most difficult characteristic to find in people now. You know, you mentioned Trump as an example, uh, and he he instills one of two, like that, just that name instills one of two feelings in people, either like severe anger or some sort of pride and connection as huh. part of your tribe. And, uh, and that's a really terrible aspect of the growth of our culture and our society. Um, I don't know how the fuck I went down this avenue. <laughs> What's I, I agree with you, and I, I I agree that while I have like my politics and beliefs, the one thing I've found for myself is that I don't have the um, the the sort of I, I I I'm not allowed to be polarized. You know, I don't like to live too much in absolutes. Yeah, like I know this for sure. I I yeah. and so and yet you're right. Like it is such this incredibly polarizing time like what what's what's the remedy though like my feeling is that it doesn't even seem like there's a solution there is i mean the, there has to be we've overcome great obstacles in the past as a as a um you know as as humanity as as a mass of one particular species on this planet we've overcome and survived quite a bit but this one i have no idea how we'll pull through but it has to happen. Mm. I mean, there's only two options, and the other one is so bleak, it's not worth um, thinking about. Right. So there's there's really only one way, and approaching any of those um, with fear, like approaching any of, of those conversations with fear isn't going to help anything, or anger isn't going to help anything on either side. And the only way to break through to people is to allow yourself to be broken through to, to, under, to try your best to understand where someone else is coming from. Because I have people in my family that probably voted for Trump, and that doesn't make them any less my family. Same. So th those are those are relationships that will um, that will evolve through anything, and this included. So, you know, you for now, I don't talk about it with them, but I should. We should be able to. This is something that we should be able to talk about, just like anything else. We don't share the same religion. We don't. We don't share the same location. We don't share the same ideologies in a lot of ways. But that doesn't mean that I can't have a conversation with them about those things. And those should be open books. 
that we can both kind of figure out together because we both have different things to bring to the table. I am curious why people are so willing to vote against themselves, to, to work against themselves, mm. how that becomes, what, how that is so shiny. What, what is so shiny and appealing about that? I don't understand it, but I've been listening and trying to dive a little bit into this like tribal mentality that humans have, which is a really interesting rabbit hole to go down. Um, I, I agree with you completely, and I'm, I'm dying to better understand where those people are coming from. Because I, I would say, like, to your point, I, too, have family members who voted for Trump. And what I know to be true is that if we got past the initial sort of major differences in our political ideology, we could sit down and have a great meal. Yeah. And probably have similar... Uh, is Thanksgiving rough? No, because... Okay. It, Nobody talks about it. No, because and and I would say it's it's a lot of my in-laws uh, from extended side, extended family side. But what I'll say trumps all of their political leanings is that they're just class acts. Like they would never allow that to be, besmirch what should be just good manners, and that we should all be able to enjoy, and that probably deep down inside we kind of want like the same thing for our families and our kids and for ourselves we just perhaps have different ways of believing the best way to get there um yeah it is it's interesting because yeah. i can't understand at my core i just can't fathom how anything that you know this snake oil salesman has anything valuable to offer <clears throat> and who could be convinced otherwise but people are I, I think ultimately it has a lot to do with this tr the tribal nature of humanity and, and human beings that we connect with. There's a lot of great studies that, that are valuable just to be aware of it, it, in this conversation because we do it too. I mean um, I, everyone does it. So it's not like Democrats are somehow better than Republicans and, and obviously you know, it's not true on the other side either. We're, we're all just subject to our own opinions and our own perspective. Um, but th that can get cloudied, uh, can get muddied up by this idea that we belong to something, that you and I both believe in Obama as a valuable aspect of our history as Americans, mm. that he did something good here. And if you're a part of the Republican Party, if you see tribally that that's your connection, you don't think he did. Even if you can, even if you can say, oh, here is something that someone did in the history of America. Before they knew who it's linked to, they can say, yeah, that was a good thing. And as soon as you, it's linked to someone that exists on the other side of that line, they can immediately convince themselves that that isn't true now. Hmm. Do you – do you think hating Trump is or not liking him is um, hating the sink instead of the well in the respect of like I try to think about this a lot that like he didn't win by coup. No. Like, he was voted in. And so like this is a majority. I always say something to the effect of like here we are in our coastal cities screaming at the middle who yell back at us, fuck you, we built your cities. And so there's like this weird sort of push and pull of like where I think inevitably it's going to be us in our coastal city screaming at each other and, and we'll just sort of burn down the middle. But I, yeah, I don't 
I don't know exactly, but to your point and what I find, like, if there's anything that I can be ultra critical of, like, I'll be critical of my, like, ultra super left friends who who we share the same ideology and yet they'll criticize me because like i to your point want to better understand the other side so like i've listened to ben shapiro because i i want to i want to get it and i'm like if there's someone that might put it in a package that could help me better understand let me just give this a shot and the fact that i would merely even put it on is blasphemy to some friends and i'm like this is no way to win guys it's no way to Right? I can't watch Fox News. I can't either. It's too much. It's just because <laughs> it's all gibberish. It's all, they're all just, um, it's an echo chamber of their terrible, nasty, nasty thoughts. Mm. Um, but, uh, and it's, and it has a specific purpose like that, you know, Rupert Murdoch, mm. he, he has an agenda, right? That's the guy that owns Fox News. Well, all 24 hour news has an agenda yeah. to a certain, because it's, it makes money. Oh, for sure. Um, but there, but there are, you know, the there is a difference between memos that go out um, company wide that say you don't talk about this. Mm. This is our position on this, and and you see multiple varying positions when you watch CNN or MSNBC. You see different people have different thoughts, and it isn't really allowed on Fox. And I and I just kind of I can't really give into that. But if but if someone has if if someone has an intellectual point to make on what the Republican Party has at this point that's valuable and what what if anything is valuable about what's happening with Trump, I would love to hear that. I would love to understand. I also am generally just curious because because I'm curious how we ended up here. What is appetizing about this? Who who? Who and why? I mean, ultimately, I, I have my own thoughts on on that, but I am. Uh, but it's it, I don't understand it well enough to have to in any way uh, rationalize voting for him. I can understand racism being a tool that was used. I can understand fear. The um, I mean, he clearly wishes he was a dictator, and he he. he used a lot of those means to get to where he is now, whether he intended to or not. Um, I, I genuinely don't think he's smart enough to know how he ended up here. I think he's just listening to other people and they're telling him things that they know to have worked because they're smart enough to have read history books. I don't think he's ever read a book. I don't think he's ever read a fucking pamphlet. Like I, I don't know if he's literate. That that's how dumb I think Donald Trump is. It's interesting, which is sad that that I could feel that way about a guy who was voted into office as our nation's president. Yeah, but I, you know, I have. I mean, listen, I have friends that voted for Bernie in the primary and then voted for Trump in the election. Yeah, because they're both polarizing characters, and they and they have strong opinions about things, and I can see how they're. They're more akin than Bernie and Hillary. I can see that. I don't agree with that decision, but I can understand how you go, yes, he's a guy who's going to change things. And then, and then even though history tells us that Trump is a liar and a con artist, he's saying some of the things that trigger the feelings that Bernie triggered. And then, of course, you make that decision and anyone who voted for Bernie in the primaries and then voted for Trump regrets their decision now. Because obviously he doesn't embody any of the characteristics that you wanted Bernie in there for. 
Well, and they both, yeah, and they both represented mm. a deviation from the norm, yeah. which it seemed as though Hillary was, you know, the the spokesperson yeah. for. And inevitably, yeah, I mean, look, I have a buddy, a really, really close friend who didn't vote for Trump, but but is a Republican, and and I asked him, I said. You know, when things like after the government shut down, I mean, who, you know, when could have been a a more terrible time for Trump, right? Like widely considered, like this is a fucking mess. And then I think days after the government uh, started working again, there was a Rasmussen poll and Trump was like at 48%, like hadn't even fallen too far. And I remember in a moment of like feeling bleak, I asked my good buddy, I'm like, what, what are, what's an LA lib like me not seeing? What am I not seeing? I think it's racist. I think uh, in a big way it's racism. He said – You know, they said the South will rise again. And, and 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 this is like a really unfortunate way to find that to be true. But I think that's what's happening. I think we're seeing a massive uh, openness with racism that has been bred and taught over generations that is finally in, in being emboldened. By this, t- I mean, uh, this isn't even like a crazy out there thing to say. That all of the evidence points to him in, in, in you know, embodying, emboldening all of these racist people to doing what they want to do, which is alienate other races and claim somehow that being any particular race makes you better. Which, I, which, which anyone with a rational brain knows isn't true, and us all bonding together and creating a better world is the most valuable thing. But fuck, man, I like I, I feel lost. Like even just talking about it, I this like overwhelming lost sensation like oh, takes my body over because I, I don't get it. I wasn't raised in a rural area where there was one. I was a minority in all of the schools I went to school in, except when I went to Florida. And I, so I can't relate to this thing. So it's like, it's just so, it's infuriating to me. I mean, my buddy said, and it, I, I imagine the, there's parts of what you said to be true, like this, this underlying insidious sort of racism that, that has never, might never go away. But I think, it, I think it can, I th- but, but it's, but it's a compassion. It's, because it's all out of fear. All that racism is fear. They feel like they're losing something that they never had. We never owned this land. We came here and killed a bunch of people who did, if anyone did, own this land. And then we took it over. So this isn't our land. This isn't like we, the, the, you know, the Brits who came here and fucking killed the Indians never owned this land. They claimed it. And then they just and, – and we've been trying to fight – you know, we uh, – I, you know, I came here as a – my grandfather was a German immigrant um, and moved to Wisconsin. And so I, I don't have the same connection to this country as I, – I don't feel connected to that side of things. Granted, I grew up in L.A. and I was um, – you know, I mostly went to school with uh, – elementary school. I went to school with a lot of Korean kids. And then when I got older, I was in school with a lot of – with a whole mixed bag of, of all ethnicities. Um, and so I was never really – I never felt any of that connection, even, mm. the, even the slightest bit. So I, so I don't really get it. But is there – you know, it's interesting. Basically, the one thing I wanted to say was that my, my yeah, buddy – Yeah, sorry, I cut you off. No, not at all. But, you know, he said something to the effect of – and it did strike me. He's like, what do I think happened? He said, I think that Trump went to those Rust Belt states that Hillary thought were, was in the bag. 
And he went to all those people who, after eight years of this president that they felt represented them, said, is it any better? You still don't have a job. You're still struggling. And you've been struggling for the last 20 years through all of whether left or right through sort of the old establishment. Fuck it. They, they went for anarchy light. Yeah. They said, try it. And to your point, like, and I've heard this said before, don't mistake malevolence for stupidity. I think there are a lot of unfortunate people out there who believe that like this blustering bloat bag of like a guy in a suit with a New York accent is how shit gets done. And like they've watched too many movies and they believe that like, yeah, maybe we do need to run the country like a business. But the only thing that that when I hear my friends feeling so disheartened, disheartened and pulling themselves off off the floor, I sometimes have to remember, and I've heard this said before as well, like the brilliance of our government and the way that it was set up by our forefathers is that it's built for gridlock. So it actually is kind of hard to get anything too great done. And it's also hard to to hurt us too tremendously. And I don't mean to undermine anything that Trump's done, but yeah. it, it's much like to the bu- the, the national I- budget. like. The national budget is preset for more than 50%. Like, it's not even touchable by any, like, especially by the president, but by many people in the government. Like, that's just set money every year that's going to pre-design things. So, like, to me, too, I, I also, before I get too bummed out about this, realize that, like, whether it's in two years or, God forbid, six, like, to your point, we've been through so much worse. Like, I think we... I think we come out of this. I think we inevitably come out of this better. It's the fucking American way. Yeah, I think we ha- we have to. It's how we roll. There is no other option, ultimately. But mm-hmm. it is. It's worrisome. It uh, there's like a doom. There's like a black cloud over over <laughs> it, which that that sucks. Mm. That's something that's sometimes difficult to cope with, especially as a person who struggles with depression for most of my life. That's something that's like easy to harp on and easy to get down about. So I can't imagine how other people are dealing with it. Um, I'm interested to hear what you think, because I have my feelings about it too, is that so being in a position of like influence and, and power and, and to, you know, you've, you're beloved by so many people who've watched your work. And then when you see like actors who win awards and use that as sort of their stage to express their feelings or their message, do you think it do you even think it works? I don't think that's the. I. 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 I it's not no, the place. No. Right. It's only to your own people. I mean, the the biggest problem that I think we have is that there aren't enough places for the conversation to truly take place. That everything is an echo chamber. The people who are going to watch that award show are already believe in what's going on on our side anyway. They all. Do you think that? Because I don't think. Uh, I don't think what, who's watching the Oscars. Though? Oh, I think Nancy in Kansas watches the Oscars, and I think I don't think they care enough to watch. I think and the how award do you know, shows. How do you know Nancy? I love Nancy. <laughs> She's nice. Have you ever had her rice dish with chicken? No, I'll ask her the next time I see her. I'll knock your socks off, Martin. Yeah. Yeah. A good apple pie. I'll tell you that though. Yes. Homemade love. whipped cream. Allah or. Knock your socks off. Or not a Lamode. Uh, the mode is up to you. Yeah. But I just eat the apples. So you're not going beast mode? Oh, I go beast mode on those apples. Yeah, I had a feeling. 
Um, yeah, I don't know, but it's uh, it's an interesting thing. So, do you think you're depressed because you're an actor, or you're an actor because you're depressed? I don't think those two are connected. I think I'm a human <laughs> being, and so I, 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 I don't know. It's all it's all interconnected. I think being an artist certainly makes you more. Uh, subject to those kind of feelings making their way in because we we don't have regularity. It's definitely harder to keep a structure in your life when you might go out of town for four months or you have to wake up at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning and then noon the next day. You have to be at work at 6 a.m. and then the next day you have to be at noon and may, might work till 1 a.m. or something. You know, like you're, you, because our schedules are so um, can change so drastically from day to day, month to month, week, you know, year to year. Um, that that's something that makes it. I, th I find that structure gives you the most um, emotional consistency as well, mm. which is part of why I'm in really enjoying Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It gives me some consistency with with my body and working out, and you know, all of it. The mental capacity it takes to figure out what that next move is and get better at this thing that I'm. I'm undertaking. Did you ever feel like like depression was a uh, sort of a byproduct of your artistry and then to like completely rid yourself or treat the depression might affect you as an artist? I'm sh sure they're connected, but I don't know that it's that immediate. Mm. I don't th I certainly don't think it would um negatively affect my creative self to overcome this negativity. In fact, I think it would only get better. The better I can deal with this, I think it helps me be more creative because it opens more doors that are being closed by this cloud. I I always, I, I've sort of dabbled it with the idea of taking antidepressants for most of my life, but I think- I have friends who do and, they, and it works great for them. And they're actors? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so tempting. But then I, I always fear, and it's funny, I, I interviewed this guy, Phil Stutz, who's kind of, he wrote a book called The Tools, but he's in quote, quote unquote, like the psychologist to the stars, or psychiatrist. Nice. Yes. And so he's seen them all. And my question, of course, to him was like, how many people are in fear when they see you that if they were to take medication, that it would affect their artistry in some way? And he said, all of them. Mm -hmm. And I said, and for the ones who've taken it, what's the result been? none of them have seen a detrimental effect to their work. And to your point, it's only heightened them to be free of that cloud. Mm -hmm. But man. It's interesting. It's a, it's a drug. So I have the same fear that you have in that. What is that effect going to be on every part of my, bo of my body and my life? Not only this. Like, yeah, the, that it, there is no, I kind of just don't tr trust psychological Stimulants, drugs. The but, silver bullet. Yeah, no, yeah. Don't don't fully trust it. I'm with you. There was one thing you said early on when you were talking about going to to um, Laksa, mm -hmm. and you said that you were disappointed to leave there to go do Freaks and Geeks. Were you disappointed to sort of give up that that normality? <laughs> I almost didn't go. I almost didn't work on Freaks and Geeks. Because I knew that I had, going into it, I had to make the decision as to whether I wanted to leave the school or not. That was part of my decision of going to, to work on the pilot of Freaks and Geeks. 
um, because they only allow you 10 sick days from school. And I knew that uh, I knew at that point that I was going to have to leave for seven days, I think, was how long I was needed to shoot on the pilot for Freaks and Geeks. Hmm. And I and I had already missed um, four days, I believe. So this put me over by one. And that one day was all it took. Like the school had no leniency. It was a very finite number. If you miss, I had to audition to get in. So there were tons of kids in, in LA County that auditioned to get in that didn't get in. And so for me to take that spot and miss 11 days to them was me not being dedicated to being at school. And so, and I mean, it, I think the crazy thing would be if I was actually sick for 11 days and then they were like, you gotta go. Yeah. Sorry, your body was not working properly for 11 days. Um, but because, especially because it was work, there was no leniency. So I almost stayed at that school instead of working on Freaks and Geeks just because it took me, you know, at that point, 16 years of my life to find a place that felt like home, where I felt comfortable going to school. And so that was a tough decision to make, to leave that opportunity, which took so long to find. I'd hated school up until I got to that school. I so identify. I went to performing arts in New York. Okay. And I remember. What's that, what's that uh, school called? It's called PPAS, Professional Performing Arts School. Oh, okay. <laughs> is, there, is that the public one? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and then there's PCS, which is the private one. Okay. And LaGuardia, which is the famous school. So, but I, I too remember walking in the halls. Uh, it was middle school and high school. So it was sixth grade and feeling like, oh, like I'm surrounded by the freaks. Yeah, I found my people. That's what it was. I, it was. I, I had a similar awakening when when I was walking down the hall on the first day, and I saw openly gay kids in the high school, and I was like, no kid in any school I'd been to up until that point had would have the 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 balls would find it safe to mm. to be themselves to that degree, and I. A pr and, and that's when I knew I had found a place where I could be myself because I was shielding myself from bullies or persecution in any particular way because I wore glasses or was goofy or weird. or And I was like, this is going to be a place where I can be myself. And that was the best feeling ever. So it was a big debate whether it was worth it to leave that for the potential of some success on a pilot which I didn't. I had no idea whether this would go or work or whether it would be fun or what that experience would be like. I never had any experience like that. But I knew that school sucked, and I found a school I loved. Did you know it was great, the pilot for Freaks and Geeks? The experience was great. I mean, like reading the script. Like, Did you know, like, oh, this feels special? I didn't have anything to compare it to. So, right. I, so now I can look back and appreciate it beyond, um, beyond anything that I've – that I had experienced up until that point for sure, and um, and probably even now, the just the the love and uh, the the quality of everyone's work um, from top to bottom was in, in, incomparable, uh, especially in this business where it's driven by so many different things. People have so many different goals set out, and creating the best story and leaving people understanding a little piece of who you are as a writer, as a director, as a performer, um, 
th those are rare. Hmm. Those are more rare than they should be in, a, in an art form that's driven by storytelling, that's driven by human connection. So I was very lucky that I got to experience that right out of the gate. Um, and I certainly don't take it for granted now anytime I get that, which has, I've been fortunate that it's happened a number of other times. So it's a beautiful thing. Do you, I'm not sure whether, I, I know this quote and I don't know who it came from specifically, although I know I listened. John Denver. I'm guessing. I'm going to, I'm, I'm Give actually. Give me a couple others. Give me a couple more. Give me, couple, I'm pretty sure more. it was actually John Denver. The late John Denver. Oh, he died. Didn't he? God damn it. In a plane crash, no? Oh, jeez. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get out of here. Thanks, I'm going to need Martin. some time. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might have been Linda Cardellini who I was <laughs> listening to on, on Mark Marin recently. Anyway, someone said something to the effect of like people um, didn't appreciate or didn't appreciate how much you were doing as a character because they had felt it, it seemed at first look that to your point, like you had the glasses, you should have had this like perfect look for this for this character that there was so much going on that you were putting on as an actor and creating this character that people that that goes sort of unappreciated because people just thought maybe it just was sort of this natural thing you were exuding. Is that true? Um, I don't know how to answer that. I, I, I think the, the, the thing that resonated most with me was us talking about the show afterward or maybe being at a, a Q and a or something. And, um, Jake Kasdan, I think talking about how of all of us, I was the most different from my character. Yeah. And, uh, and I felt like I was aware of it. I just didn't think about it. Like that was our job. I pulled from natural from from natural places in my life that made sense, and I used techniques that I had grown up using in the improv class that I loved as a kid, and 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 used techniques that felt comfortable and natural to me to like bring this weird, very, um, very uh, emotionally um, available character to life, and it was very fun for me, and I didn't really. Think think about it beyond just doing my job. Um, but it was very, like, I was so different. I was so incredibly different. How I, like, so? Well, because I grew up in L.A., so I was I was embedded. Savvy. I was, yeah, but maybe to some degree. I certainly w wasn't not street smart as much as I could be mm. um, from from my upbringing. But, um, but it was more that, like, I was embedded in, like, hip-hop culture was a big thing for me. I, I like overalls that now I look back and it was very embarrassing that I was doing that. But I had like big baggy overalls and like Timberland boots. and That's sick. And it was just a different – like I, could, I couldn't be more different from that 80s character that embodied Paul Feig to some degree and a lot of the other uh, writers on the show. Um, so I – I get that, whereas Franco was, like, trying to be cool and then on the show was trying to be cool, like, um, and uh, and John was a young kid kind of being a young kid, and, and everyone obviously was amazing on the show, but as far as onset, offset, I don't think there's someone that you'd be like, oh, I would have never thought 
that 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 would be the same person. I remember I worked with uh, a, a movie I did right after we were done with Freaks and Geeks. I worked with one of my good buddies, this guy um, Eldon Henson, on a movie that no one will ever see. Um, What's it called? Uh, went straight to video. It was called I, Cheats. I almost primarily only do things that go straight to video. Premium. You, well, you'll relate to. Well, I guess that's the end of that part that you'll relate to. But that was. This is straight. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready straight for to more. Video. Um, but he, for sure, thought I was mentally challenged um, because he had watched Freaks and Geeks, and he was like, "That guy's doing it. I love that show." And that's why he signed up to do the movie. And then he was looking forward to meeting a guy who he anticipated being mentally challenged. Were you tempted to maybe put it on a little, make him feel better about himself? No, we just had it. We had a great time. It was it was just it was just funny how I guess convincing that like that didn't seem like a character, which is achieving the goal, right? Yes. If you can do it so naturally that that people can lose themselves in it. There's also an advantage to being someone that no one's ever seen before. So now it's harder because I have to break someone's perception potentially of something else that I've done. Does that get annoying? No, I, I mean, I don't think about it, but it is certainly, uh, it's, it's um, an obstacle in the way mentally of having, you know, just a blank slate. It's, it's a different, it's a bit different working on things. I'd say it mostly comes into play or we interact with that as actors, mostly in auditions, right? Because it's with those people that they know your work from what you've done before. Yes. So you come in and you're trying to break that mold and show them you can do something different. And you have to be even more convincing because they already see you as someone that you've played before. They've they put you in a box, whether you know it or not, whether they know it or not. Mm. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting. People like Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think, are incredible at, was incredible at creating such amazing, diverse characters, like such intricate characters, um, that it never felt like it was him, if, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean. You never felt like you got to know him. Right. If you know what I mean, like in, in, in the characters you played. Do you think Do you think it added to sort of, like, it's amazing for me just as an observer to see how beloved the show is, still is, how people continue to discover it after, you know, it was sort of a storied part of it that it had only, you know, gone one season. Do you almost think like the fact that it was only made for one season added to the infamous nature to it? Like maybe if you had, you guys had gone three seasons that maybe it wouldn't be as like, like it's literally this treasure that you only got a taste of. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's wild. It's, it's, it's also really great in a weird way. It's easy to look back and appreciate it, having never gotten bored of it, if that makes sense. So you never have? No, I mean, I, yeah, of course not. We, I mean, we only did one season, but I, but had it gone for twelve seasons, I think I'd be like, God. Now, like, like that, that, as amazing as that experience probably could have been and would have been, in some ways, it also would have controlled parts of our careers, parts of our potential as artists, uh, in ways that now having been on multiple shows that have only gone a, uh, a season or two, um, that gives you the freedom to go do something else. It becomes like doing movies. 100%. And, and that's kind of an incredible thing. 
you know, we've done Silicon Valley now for six years. We're going into our sixth season in, uh, we start in a couple of weeks. And that's an incredible feeling to have now finally had this kind of full, <clears throat> this like much wanted um, experience of fulfilling a full trajectory of a show, which which we I, to some degree even did on Freaks and Geeks. They knew that we shot the last episode of Freaks and Geeks in the middle of the season because they they could foresee that we were going to get canceled at some point. They were trickling out the episodes, so we had we had our. Uh, first 12, I forget what they're called now, but like the, we had our order, or, or the first order of 12. And then they just kind of gave us a little bit more and a little bit more. So every episode was, we'll order a couple more episodes, three more episodes, two more episodes. And so they immediately were like, okay, we got to, let's write the last episode. Let's shoot that now. So we know that we can give our audience when we're done with this as full a story as we can with, with a finite ending. And wow. they, they had very intentionally written that out. So so they then, which is kind of incredible, especially working on Silicon Valley now, the, they work very differently, obviously. But I've watched every season as Mike and Alec toil over every every detail and 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 fight through every episode to make it as good as they possibly can. But they couldn't. I don't think that that's something like the way that they work, they couldn't know the the final episode until they've done the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh. So it couldn't. The, the it's so genius that Paul and Judd knew how to write a story that that really finished, bookended this show, saw it all the way. Yeah, and and that they could then move from where they were to get there. Yeah. Is a very difficult thing in television, especially. I mean, I guess this is the only place it would be happening, but um, but it's a it's a super difficult thing to like write the last ten pages of a book when you haven't written the hundred pages in between now and then. I mean, Vince Gilligan mm. talked about on Breaking Bad, like they would literally write themselves into a corner at the end of every season. Yeah, where they were like, we have no fucking idea. Oh, the show's so good. God, it's good. I didn't watch that until years after. Oh, man. It's almost better that way. Oh, yeah, because I got to binge watch it all. It was incredible. Just practice jujitsu moves in your living room while you watching Walter White? Yeah, right? you, yeah, you got it. <sighs> and making meth. Sick. Um, okay, Ed, <clears throat> I, I know you got to run, so I only have two more questions. Um, so to have worked with, like, these these titans, like Mike Judge and Judd and who I I – I think I ruined my relationship with, but he oh no, what happened? A little bit. <laughs> He's, Judd was so nice and good to me, and and I, you know, I'm. Jew. Wow, what'd you do? You kick him in the thing. balls? Did you give him a breast? What uh, happened? <laughs> it wasn't the breast; it was the herpes. <laughs> then, he, oh, then he got pissed. Dude, about. you really you gotta you gotta make sure it's all cleared up before you go in for that. <laughs> Finish the thought. No, I don't Finish want it. to. We don't need to go there. So what what happened? I fucked up. I, I you know I was nineteen <clears throat> and I finished Drake and Josh and so I was just being a knucklehead kid sowing my wild oats and, it, and I've told this story before on the pod and I auditioned for that movie that Seth had written that he produced. Um, Super bad. Drillbit Taylor. A drillbit. That Steve Brill wrote. Yes. Or directed. Directed. But Seth. Ha- um, and Chris Brown. Chris Brown wrote it. Right. So, Chris, but I, did Chris and Seth write it together? Oh, they they might have. I, I love. Chris. I Are you friends know. with Chris? Yeah, it's the best. He's such a sweet guy. Love him. He's uh, from Wisconsin, and my, my dad was from Sheboygan. Okay. So we've bonded over the Packers, over the Green Bay Packers. He's a diehard. He's big time. Yeah, cheesehead, big time cheesehead. 
Um, so anyway, I auditioned for this to play the bully in this movie. Yeah. I think Judd's kids watched Drake and Josh. Okay. And so you already had a leg up. I think just a, a little bit, but also like I had, I was at this weird point at 19 where like I'd come off this show and like the weight of the world hadn't entered my, my understanding quite yet. Yeah. So I kind of went in weirdly free to the audition and just kind of killed it. Like just had fun. Nice work, man. Thank you. And, but, and so I got this really nice, uh, sort of email note from Judd saying like, Hey, like you're not right for this, but you're funny. So we're just going to write you a part in the movie and just hang out. Just think of funny shit and try shit and, you know, we'll figure it out. That's a zone where he loves to, he likes fine. He's has such a good knack for talent. So it's a huge compliment that that um, that he felt that way about you and sent you that email because he really does have an eye for great writers, performers, directors. Thanks. <laughs> I I mean he couldn't he couldn't have been lovelier. And I remember I showed up on set and I remember like the first few days went actually like very well and and I remember even then he like we were behind Video Village at one point and he was like you know I'm shooting this other thing super bad. <laughs> You should come by. Maybe, maybe we'll figure out a scene to get you in it. Because he's so fucking generous. Yeah. Like, And I was like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, I didn't go by. Oh, you should have. Uh, I, yeah. went, I went by and ended up in a, in a scene in that. You're great in it. <laughs> so inevitably, I wind up just doing some more knucklehead shit, not you know, leaving right when I was done, not hanging out, coming late. I was just being a 19-year-old idiot. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there was one specific day after like a couple moments of some bad behavior, nothing like too egregious, just not being thoughtful. Yeah. That he was on set and it was a day where I needed to show up on time because it was it was contingent on me being there and I just was late like an hour. And it was bad. And I got another email, but not like the first yeah. one. Kind of just setting me straight. And since then, I've and even in that moment, I, I made an amends to him. And and since then, I've seen them, and he has seen I've seen him, and he's been nothing but gracious. And I was yeah. like, dude, like I'm sober now. I <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like you gave me a great opportunity, and I didn't do right by you. And and if there's anything I can ever do to to make it up, and I I don't think he even thinks about me. I just think it was like a lost opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Those things come and go, but. Yeah, certainly beating yourself up about it won't help. I, yeah. I was super late one day on Freaks and Geeks, and they were in the process of writing me out. But it was the same thing of just being 16, finally being cool, like having something that gave me some sort of a leg up in this world where it, it was it never felt like that would ever happen. Mm. And so I like had gone out and had a few drinks, uh, and then I had to work the next day. And I'd got home late, and I woke up to my mom banging on the door. Ugh. So I was 16, living living with my mom. And she was banging on the door saying, your, uh, your work, like work is calling. Work is calling. You're supposed to be there hours ago. And then I like just threw clothes on and jumped in my car and drove to set. And I – like it, it looks like – what happened happened like in when you watch that scene at least to me it's so blatantly obvious it's the episode where we get the keg the fake beer keg and we're there at the liquor store and we're just we're just pulling up to get the keg and then we're rolling it down the street i think that was the same day and i was like scolded so thoroughly that i by like Jed. yeah by 
by Judd and Jake was directing that episode and it was, or at least he was there. I think he was directing that episode. Um, and it was, and I deserved it, but I was a kid. Like, like the, the hard thing about that whole experience in general or work as a kid in general is you're a kid. You're not, you're really not capable of handling that kind of responsibility. You don't get, you don't get it. Right. You don't get the weight that's on your shoulders. You don't fully grasp it because you haven't lived enough of life to know that you're inconveniencing hundreds of people right. and 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 how terrible, how disrespectful a, a thing that is. You just don't get it yet mm. unless you're incredibly adept at, at understanding that particular lesson, which I wasn't. So I've made the same mistake and he's come he comes around. I'm sure he holds nothing. Uh, personal about that, but you live and you learn, and it's good to have had that experience there. Then for that to have for you to have been a half hour late, and him think, oh, it wasn't worth it to talk about it yet, like it wasn't so severe, and then that become a habit that you got into, which that that is a habit that's so uh, important to break earlier rather than later, yeah, for your own well being. And I have a podcast now, so obviously I'm doing yeah fine. Killing it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you should have him on it. You can just talk about that the whole time. I would like to do any. I mean, I, I would literally, I, I wish I could tell him, I, I like, I, I'll do, cra like, let me do something for you that has no vanity to it. Like, can I just do craft service? Like, can I just work for three months for you to, to make up for my misstep years ago? Like. He'll take it. Can I just, yeah. Think so? Yeah. I make a beautiful snack table. Prove it. Really? Let, rock and roll. I'm not in control of this, by the way. Pass on, pass along the yeah, note, Martin, because yeah. I think he's changed his email. Let anyway, me, I'll send him a, a Twitter message. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't believe you're doing anything on that. your phone <laughs> right now, Martin. Um, okay, last question. I ask everyone on the pod this: What are your one or two Martin Star commandments? Truths that you have discovered that you would want to impress upon someone else? Um, do jujitsu. Right. Yep. We've all learned that today. Uh, no, I I would honestly say just learning, maintaining um, growth and development so that you aren't stagnant is maybe the most valuable characteristic as a human being. I think it also helps in that conversation we had for an hour and a half here today um, about the two tribes that exist in our country, unfortunately, and and being you know being open minded and, and learning is uh, maybe the most valuable thing that I, I see in my own life that I can always um, do better. Martin Starr. Was that, how many was that? Did we I did it. Do it was enough? beautiful. Great. Unless you want more, but I think I crushed it. You feel good? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right, good. I'll tell how, how do you feel? Kevin? 10 out of 10. All right. Wow. It's huge. Kevin doesn't like anything. No, that's what I heard about Kevin. Only problem is Kevin's a Republican. Oh. Hardcore. Can I just say we need to talk about Kevin? <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Thanks, man. That was it. That was Martin Starr. Hope you enjoyed it. And that was the end of the podcast. So have a great week. You're enough. I love you. And I really appreciate you guys listening because this is the favorite, best thing that I get to do in my career. Thank you. Have a great week. Bye, guys.